Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, a Me Too moment for yoga. We'll hear about a groundbreaking investigation. How do I explain that this morning I was so angry that I wanted to scream out loud? That I wonder if I'll ever be able to practice yoga asana again or feel safe as a student in a yoga studio. And we meet two families recovering from recent wildfires and hear why it's taking them longer than other survivors to rebuild their lives. Plus, a 92-year-old artist tells us how her sculptures reflect her fears about a changing planet. To look at this beautiful blue globe and see big blobs of plastic bigger than California blew my mind. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. With your next inhale, place your hands down on the floor, and you're going to walk your hands back towards the mirror. Yoga. It's a place many of us go to relax. Let your chest and head melt Or find a safe space. Really try to relax and let go. But imagine you're doing a backbend and your yoga teacher comes over and strokes your breasts. Well, that's what happened to one of the women who talked with my colleague Miranda Lightsinger for an investigation uncovering the issue of sexual misconduct in the world of yoga here in California. So, Miranda, what got you interested in looking at this issue as it plays out in the world of yoga? Um, We did a call out for Me Too accounts in the San Francisco Bay Area last fall. And out of all the ones that we received, there was one that came in from a woman who was alleging that her yoga mentor groped her during a massage. I myself, I've been a practitioner of yoga for 15 years, and I've always considered it a safe and sacred space and a place where you have community. But it started to make me think, could this space not be so safe? We did some additional call-outs, and we ended up ultimately hearing from seven women, uh, one in San Diego, the others in the Bay Area, making accusations against five teachers. And those ranged from inappropriate massage to a violating touch, from drugging to statutory rape. So you talked to one woman, her name is Eka Ekong, and she's been teaching yoga for about a dozen years. Let's hear some of the interview you did with her. 
We all come to yoga because something hurts. Maybe your heart hurts. Maybe your low back hurts. Something hurts. And you're putting your trust in this person. Not that they have to fix it or heal it, but you're giving them, you're saying, I'm here, see me. I'm going to do the work, but I might need you to come by and, you know, kind of give me some guidance. But Eka herself lost that trust in her own yoga teacher. Last November, she went to a class. There was a substitute. She says she came in, took off her sweatshirt, and she says that he made a sexually inappropriate comment. She just kind of brushed it off. They started the practice. He came to give her some adjustments on her alignment. She gave him the okay. But then she says he at one point came up behind her, put his hands near her genitals when she was in a lunge position that's known as warrior two in yoga, and abruptly pushed her legs apart. She came out of the pose, something didn't feel right, and later she found out that something wasn't right. She had a groin injury, some bruising, um, and she's still living with it today, nearly a year later. And she also felt really emotionally violated. Well, she, there were so many range of emotions that she felt. She's a teacher. And one of the things that she uh, told the studio where she works and where this happened um, is she wondered if this happened to her and she's a teacher, what could be happening to other students? And so she's kind of had a crisis of conscience over being a teacher in this industry. Eka wrote a letter to a yoga association about her experience, and you asked her to read that to you. Let's hear a little bit of that letter. Every day, my close friends, students, and peers, they ask me, how are you healing? I don't know what to tell them. I offer the usual, I'm hanging in there doing well, blah, blah. How do I tell them that some moments I'm okay? And then I'm in tears. How do I explain that this morning I was so angry that I wanted to scream out loud? That I wonder if I'll ever be able to practice yoga asana again or feel safe as a student in a yoga studio. We've been hearing so much about sexual misconduct in so many industries. I know I reported on janitors and farm workers, for example, where it's the employer or the supervisor who's often accused of this kind of misconduct. But here it's the teacher. What what makes yoga different when it comes to Me Too stories? It's different because when you walk into a yoga studio or you step on your mat, what's implied in the space or what's given is, is touch and trust. You are looking to your teacher to guide you on your journey, and it can be not only a physical one, but an emotional one as well. And touch is a fundamental part of the practice to improve your practice. How do you know when that touch crosses a line, though? You know, leading yoga experts that I've spoken to, they just said, go with your gut. You know, when it doesn't feel right, it's not right. They say, if it doesn't feel good to you, stop. You know, ask the teacher, leave, but really to trust your instinct.
So did Eka confront her teacher? Did she tell the yoga studio? What did the yoga teacher say? Well, Eka, like many of the other women I spoke to, did not want to confront um, the alleged attacker. She went to the studio first. Then she went to the police and she filed a report. And then finally, she went to the institute, the Iyengar Institute that the teacher belongs to. That's the branch of yoga. The branch of yoga that he belongs to. And she filed a complaint with them. But there's not a lot of ways for people to seek justice in yoga. Miranda, did you reach out to this teacher that she alleges touched her in this way? I did. He says that with the comment he made, he was not trying to objectify her in any sexual way. He questions what he calls little inconsistencies in her description of the injuries. You know, he says he's sorry that she got injured in his class, and he now is going to stop offering any adjustments. He feels touch is important to teach the students the right pose, but after this, he said it's been traumatic for him. He imagines it's been traumatic for her. He's going to stop touching. It strikes me that some of this is public, right? It's happening right in a yoga class. How could other students not see when something like this happens? It may just be the pose that they are in, such as the woman we talked about at the beginning who is in a backbend. Everyone's heads are on the ground. It was an advanced backbend pose. She just says no one could see. Um, But there's also times when it happens outside of class. Uh, One of the women I spoke to, she was in a uh, yoga teacher training program. She says that her mentor had her come over to his condo for one-on-one sessions. And during those sessions, she said that he told her that she needed massage to feel more into her body. She just figured it was part of the program. So she went ahead with it. And she said that over a number of sessions that he moved up from her feet up her body to in the last session, she said he was massaging her buttocks and around her groin. And at that point, she stopped the sessions and she eventually filed a police report. In another case, um, I spoke with a teenager who said that she was seduced by her teacher who was twice her age he contacted her on social media and started to to groom her to have sex with him we've seen a number of text messages that she shared with us she did file a police report and the police said that they did believe that the pair had a sexual relationship however brief You know, she had a crush on her teacher. She thought, this is my yoga teacher. She also called him her guru. She was a young person who had really found herself through yoga. Um, But over time, she said she came to the realization that he had sexually abused and manipulated her. We have some tape from her, but we're not using her real name. And we actually have to disguise her voice because of fear of repercussions. Yoga wasn't what I thought it was. And that yoga teachers weren't as authentic and genuine and dependable and safe as I always thought they were. And um, I haven't exactly been able to look at the practice the same way. Sounds like part of the problem is that it's really hard to figure out how to hold these teachers accountable. This industry is pretty unregulated. 
I spoke to a longtime instructor um, in the Bay Area, Judith Lassiter. She said, all you need to be a yoga teacher in the United States of America is students. There is no licensing of teachers across the country. So if you think about other institutions like doctors, lawyers, they have associations that uh, define their practice, that can investigate them if there are complaints that say, you know, what they should and shouldn't be doing, and that doesn't exist in yoga. There's also very limited state regulation of these yoga teacher training programs, which are a big business in yoga and help a lot of studios uh, with their bottom line. There's not much recourse for victims except to go to the criminal justice system. And even there, as we know, getting any of these cases into a courtroom is very difficult. But you are seeing some changes in the way some of these yoga associations are approaching this issue, right? I mean, they're starting to shine a light on it. Yoga Alliance, which is the largest registry for yoga teachers uh, in the world, came under new leadership last year, a couple months before Me Too started. And uh, they've released statements, and this video that we're going to hear, Shannon Roche, the CEO of Yoga Alliance, um, she put out this message early on to the community that they were tackling this issue. In this Me Too moment, we too must act. There's a deeply troubling pattern of sexual misconduct within our community, a pattern that touches almost every tradition in modern yoga. To definitively turn the page on that history, we must openly acknowledge the issue of sexual misconduct in yoga. So for the women who did pursue this by filing police reports, going through the criminal justice system, do they feel like they got justice? No, they don't. They um, All of the cases that the police forwarded to the DA's uh, offices were the DA declined to prosecute. Um, they experienced what many victims experience in this country, that the DA is looking at which cases can they get convictions on. I did speak to an assistant district attorney who works in sex crimes area, and she said, you know, a lot of these boil down to he said, she said, and that the law favors the defendant. So they wanted to do it to have it on the record, and most of them knew it wasn't going to go forward, but they wanted it to be filed with the police. So it's one thing to acknowledge the problem, but what do you think it's going to take to really make this industry change? Some people like Judith Lassiter, who have been in the community for so long, say it's licensing, regulation, something legal credentials with teeth, enforcement. Um, others, I spoke to Gary Kissia, a yoga lawyer, and he really thinks it's going to come from the studios themselves, putting in you know codes of conduct, setting up independent ethics communities that students know that they can go to. Others think it's the students themselves, and we're starting to see that um, with these tokens or consent chips um, in yoga classes, what you can do with these is put them on your mat to signal if you do or do not want an adjustment. So there's a number of different approaches out there. Maybe one will prevail, but it's definitely something now that the community is really looking at to address. Miranda, thanks for talking with us about your investigation. Thank you. You can read more of Miranda Lightsinger's reporting at California Report.
California's on fire again. The Delta Fire north of Redding is just the latest blaze in what's become a record fire year. Natural disasters like fire can be hard on everybody, but it can take much longer for people who are low income to rebuild their lives. KQED's Sam Harnett spent time with two families struggling to recover from wildfire. One's in Shasta County, the other's in Mendocino. Both places grapple with high poverty rates. Pretty unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, the lady's house next door is right where my husband's standing. Wow. It's right there. Wendy and Norm Alvarez had a unique living arrangement, which they depended on because Wendy has MS and can't work. Norm is a carpenter, and he took care of an antique dealer's house. The couple lived on the property in a little in-law unit. They planned to retire there. It was peaceful and quiet to sit out here in the evening with all the trees and birds and animals. and We, we had, had a good life. They lived on a scrubby country road on the outskirts of Redding. About a month ago, the car fire forced Norm and Wendy to evacuate. The next day, they were watching the news and saw their neighborhood. They panned, and I go, that's our yard. And I was just sitting there, and I'm going, okay, please, please, please. The and camera moved sure over enough, where their house should have been. Then all of a sudden, it's my home gone. I just was in shock. That's the that's shop the area. That's what's been Yeah, there was a wall here, and it stepped down over on the other side to the little room. For our garden. Norm walks to the edge of his old workshop, hands in his pockets. Not only did they lose their possessions, their affordable living situation, and Norm's caretaking arrangement, they lost what Norm used to make money, his tools. Yeah, table saws, chop saws, generators, ladders, all that. It's history. All he has left is a drill, which just happened to be in his truck when they fled. The car and Mendocino complex fires destroyed over 1,300 homes. Like many displaced by the fires, Wendy and Norm didn't have renter's insurance. Wendy says for the first time, they've had to ask for help. Financially, we are in a tough position that we haven't had to be in, and that has been very uncomfortable. It's um, to humble yourself to ask for help. They got some money for food and clothes from groups like the Red Cross, the Buddhist Two Chi Foundation, and the Lions Club. And FEMA helped them cover a few months' rent. Right now, they are splitting an apartment with other fire survivors. None of us know what direction we're going to go. Wendy and Norm need to start generating income. They're trying to scrape together money to buy Norm some tools so he can get work helping others rebuild. All this loss has made it hard for them to even think about a long-term plan. It strips you from the inside out. It doesn't leave you feeling like you have any value. You don't have any um, hope left to go forward. I'm a godly woman, so I ask God a lot every day, you know, give me the strength to make it through. Wendy and Norm may never recover financially. Good jobs and affordable housing are hard to replace in rural Northern California. Losing a home can destabilize a family for years. You can see that happening around here with all the fires that have recently hit the region. Many fire survivors from previous years are still in limbo, like John and Ellen Brackett. Over there where the truck is used to be a motorhome that my niece and her husband lived in. Their house in Mendocino County was burned last October. Over here was all of our vehicles, like my daughter's truck, my son's really old school Buick. Back here where the trees are is where the house was. Well, John's grandparents bought this land. It's two acres, all paid for. And it was filled with three generations of stuff. Tools, trailers, and lots of motorbikes. This is what I rode out of here with my Harley. That's the only thing I saved. The couple had no insurance. 
Ellen said it was complicated and expensive because they had so much stuff on the property. After the fires, FEMA gave them $21,000, but it didn't go very far. And just for our well was almost all the money we got from FEMA, so... They needed the well on their property to get a FEMA trailer, which they're still living in. So these are our lovely good old FEMA trailers. How long have you been here? Um, what we got here, February this year? Yeah. The family has no real savings. Ellen has a job doing in-home care, and John was a sheetrocker. But a motorcycle accident and years of hanging drywall destroyed his shoulder. He just had surgery, and his doctor told him he's done with manual labor. I'm one of those kind of guys that like to give help. I don't like to receive it. I like to give it. So what do you, what are, what's the hope? Like, what do you, what are you? Living, rebuilding, and yeah, working on staying, you know, doing right. Because I used to be an idiot, and I didn't give a about nothing until I met my kids and my family. And I've been to prison on half of my life, and, and I got out and I started doing good. <sighs> he, he started doing really good and then just loses everything. 402 families in Mendocino County lost their homes last October, and only one has rebuilt and moved back in. That's according to a local organization called Mendocino Rebuilding Our Community. Around 50 families, like the Brackets, are living in FEMA trailers. But you only get a FEMA trailer for 18 months. Ellen and John will lose theirs next April. We, we, we have to be done with our plan. Yeah, like, we, got, yeah. we have to have a place out here before then, because my kids, his mom, they, I mean, me and him, yeah. we could rough it in a tent. But a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 70-year-old cannot be in a tent. Mendocino Rebuilding Our Community estimates it would take around $9 million for everyone to rebuild. The group has raised $3 million. The state plans to start issuing a handful of low- or no-interest home-building loans. Ellen and John are praying they're one of the lucky few to get one. So hopefully we'll get approved for this grant, and then we're just going to slap in a five-bedroom modular and hopefully get our life back to normal, because this is a little crazy. In the couple's bedroom, they have a large plastic storage tub. In it, John keeps the remains of stuff that his family has collected over the years. See, look at that down in there. This was my dad and my grandpa's coin collection. It's just sad, dude. Ellen and John thought they could sell all this in a pinch, but only one thing survived, a hundred-year-old gold dollar coin. This one piece amongst all of this is kind of like a hope, and there, there has to... Oh, this can't be what... I got my Ends grandpa up, like, There has to be something better. <laughs> yeah. For the California Report, I'm Sam Harnett in Mendocino County. If you step into Phyllis Thielen's art studio in Marin County, some of the first things you notice are the 12 wooden globes up on a high shelf. They're big. They're the size of soccer balls. And each one represents our planet and the different ways we humans are destroying it. Phyllis is 92 years old, but she's agile enough to get up on her tippy toes and take one of those globes down from the shelf. It's covered with tiny wooden boxes. I made little squares of wood, and I put little roofs on some of them. Some are skyscrapers, but the whole planet is covered with little wood houses or buildings. An apocalyptic vision of Earth smothered by cities. She points to another globe painted blue to symbolize ocean pollution. It's got 
bits of plastic and junk in pools and puddles. And yet another dripping with oil. I felt that I was doing something to address what we're doing, like drilling, mining, fracking. All of these are not only hurting the earth, but they're producing things that aren't good for the atmosphere. Phyllis has white, wispy hair and smiling eyes behind delicate glasses. She looks every bit the great-grandmother that she is. But she's also got a biting sense of irony. She calls her collection Planet Earth Screwed. And to bring home the point, each one of her globes is screwed into a wooden block. She grew up in smoggy San Bernardino on a citrus farm where her dad taught her to pay close attention to nature. We talked to her as the Global Climate Action Summit kicks off in San Francisco later this month. We asked different Californians to tell us about their very personal relationships with climate change for a series we're calling This Moment on Earth. This is Phyllis Thielen's moment. I don't paint flowers. I don't do the usual beauty that most people think about. I look at the wrinkles in a piece of bark, which has a very attractive look that nature did herself. I like to look at pieces that fall off of trees and plants that are dead, totally dead, because they're dry and I can keep them looking that way forever. And I, being my age, I also like the idea that the old and dried up things are still beautiful. <laughs> so I've seen a lot in the last 92 years that make me very aware of how things are changing here. One of the biggest changes came when we saw a picture of planet Earth from the moon or one of the rockets. Beautiful little orb there swirling in the blue with blue and green and beautiful. And it was maybe the first time that I really had had a picture of how we looked from afar. And I began to think of it as such a vulnerable little thing out there. And I began to think about the smog that I remembered and began to see it covered in soot. And I began to think about the plastic floating in the ocean. To look at this beautiful blue globe and see big blobs of plastic bigger than California blew my mind. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't ever think about looking at the planet anymore without seeing smudges and smears and terrible things. I am a person who is inclined to see a need and fill it, not just scream at it. Which So it's natural for me to also make art that somehow addresses these issues. I would have a hard time saying I believe the world can be unscrewed the way it is now. We have gone a long way into messing things up, and it's going to take drastic work. And maybe if we all did one thing that we felt might make a difference, we would find it really did make a huge difference. It's a matter of just deciding to be a partner in this with nature in this whole struggle to keep our planet Earth looking the way it used to look from afar. (music) 
And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And this week we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our online producer. And our intern is Marisol Medina Cadena. Our team includes Becky Hogue, Kat Snow, David Weir, Erica Kelly, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction. Together, building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Thanks.